Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower to the sun, brick, mortar, and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once in khaki suits, he will look swell. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 29th day of March 2009. I'd like to welcome all of my listeners and invite them all to check out the websites, CorbettReport.com and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast as well as articles, interviews, and videos created by the Corbett Report in the past, and RSS feeds that you can subscribe to for free to keep up to date with all of the updates to the website. And now, without further ado, let's get to today's real news. Today's first real news story comes from PrisonPlanet.com, March 21st, 2009. Army dispatched in response to end the Fed protests. The Liberty Restoration Project blog has posted an advisory released last November by the United States Army Reserve. The United States Army Reserve Command is publishing this force protection advisory to advise all Army Reserve personnel of the planned protests at all Federal Reserve banks and office locations within the United States on 22nd November 2008, the document reads. This message provides situational awareness and recommended mitigation measures. According to the Army Reserve, the folks gathered and exercising the First Amendment in response to the Federal Reserve's loan-sharking operation are essentially terrorists. The Army established relationships with local law enforcement and the FBI and encouraged them to update alert rosters, according to the document. In 2003, Jim Garamone, writing for the American Forces Press Service, noted that the Northern Command cooperates with the other unified commands and shares intelligence with them, and also has forged relationships that cut across federal, state, and local agencies and include players from law enforcement, emergency services, intelligence agencies, and the military. In 2008, Air Force General Victor E. Renart Jr., commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command and NORTHCOM, told attendees of the National Homeland Defense Foundation Symposium in Colorado Springs, Colorado, that effectively defending the homeland and responding to natural or man-made disasters requires an integrated approach that involves federal, state, and local governments, and even international and private organizations. The latter a reference to Infraguard, the private sector Gestapo with shoot-to-kill orders issued by the FBI. We believe those relationships will be key to our success, Air Force General Ralph Eberhardt told Garamon. 
NORTHCOM and the Army Reserve's mission apparently also include reporting all potential protest activities to the Army Reserve Operations Center. The Army Reserve falls under the Pentagon's Continuity of Operations program that ensures the execution of mission essential functions during a national security or domestic emergency. In 2005, NBC obtained a secret 400-page Defense Department document listing more than 1,500 suspicious incidents across the country related to peaceful anti-war demonstrations. The Defense Department document is the first inside look at how the U.S. military has stepped up intelligence collection inside this country since 9-11, which now includes the monitoring of peaceful anti-war and counter-military recruitment groups. NBC reported. Today's second real news story comes from the independent.co.uk, 28th of March 2009. Police identify 200 children as potential terrorists. Drastic new tactics to prevent school pupils as young as 13 falling into extremism. 200 school children in Britain, some as young as 13, have been identified as potential terrorists by a police scheme that aims to spot youngsters who are vulnerable to Islamic radicalization. The number was revealed to the Independent by Sir Norman Bettison, the Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police and Britain's most senior officer in charge of terror prevention. He said the Channel Project had intervened in the cases of at least 200 children who were thought to be at risk of extremism since it began 18 months ago. The number has leapt from 10 children, identified by June 2008. The program, run by the Association of Chief Police Officers, asks teachers, parents, and other community figures to be vigilant for signs that may indicate an attraction to extreme views or susceptibility to being groomed by radicalizers. Sir Norman whose force covers the area in which all four 7th of July 2005 bombers grew up, said, What will often manifest itself is what might be regarded as racism and the adoption of bad attitudes towards the West. One of the four bombers of 7th of July was, on the face of it, a model student. He had never been in trouble with the police, was the son of a well-established family, and was employed and integrated into society. But when we went back to his teacher's, They remarked on the things he used to write. In his exercise books, he had written comments praising Al-Qaeda. That was not seen at the time as being substantive. Now, we would hope that teachers might intervene, speak to the child's family, or perhaps the local imam, who could then speak to the young man. The scheme, funded by the Home Office, involves officers working alongside Muslim communities to identify impressionable children who are at risk of radicalization or who have shown an interest in extremist material, on the internet or in books. Today's final real news story comes from the AFP, 28th of March 2009. From Broadway to Empire State, New York Goes Dark. From Broadway theaters to the Empire State Building, New York turned off its lights to play its part in Earth Hour, a global call for action to combat climate change. At 8.30pm, some of the most famous and most brightly lit buildings and landmarks in the world were plunged in darkness for an hour. 
skyscrapers like Empire State and the Chrysler Building were joined by the Brooklyn, Manhattan, Queensboro, and Williamsburg bridges for the operation. Gigantic lighted signs on Times Square, including those of Coca-Cola, the Chase Banking Group, and the Nasdaq Stock Exchange, also went dark in the city that never sleeps. The United Nations, whose building looks onto the East River in eastern Manhattan, pitched in, as did the city's main universities and some businesses open late. It's a good reminder to everybody that we are in charge of our destiny, New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg said in its statement. By turning out the lights, the people of New York City will be casting a vote in support of the future of the Earth, said Craig Roberts, president of the World Wildlife Fund, which launched the effort. Welcome, my friends, to episode 81 of the Corbett Report, Surviving the Collapse. The collapse, of course, refers to the ongoing economic catastrophe that is sending us to the brink of Weimar Republic-style hyperinflation, the latest sign of which was the recent announcement of the Fed that they are openly monetizing the debt and buying trillions of dollars of U.S. treasuries, which can only lead to a hyperinflationary death spiral for the dollar, which we've been warning about on the Corbett Report basically since this podcast's inception. While, of course, most of the media continues to obsess about things like the AIG bonus situation, which, of course, is abominable, but really does only present a fraction of a percent of the actual amount of money that is currently being pumped in through the auspices of the taxpayers to these banks and often being pumped out the back door to foreign banks, as in the case of AIG, which is really a funnel for taxpayer dollars to be taken out of the country and shipped off to Europe. And uh, I'll provide some links in the documentation section for today's episode, of course, so you can check out more information about that. And of course, please check the documentation list of today's episode for all of the documents cited in today's episode. But regardless, there's no doubt that many people see through the phony, misplaced anger misdirections that are thrown at us in the corporate-controlled media and see through to what is really happening and who is really to blame for this. An excellent example of just this genuine and reasonably held outrage at the bankers who are currently pilfering whatever was left of the actual sound industrial economy of our nations comes from a debate that was recently held on the French news channel France 24. The debate was between Max Kaiser, who we featured and interviewed in a previous episode of this podcast, a financial analyst who can be found at karmabank.com, and maxkaiser.com, and Pascal Salin, a professor of economics at Paris Dauphine University. As always, I would recommend that you watch the videos in their entirety, but let's take a listen to a short excerpt of the exchange between Max Kaiser and Pascal Salin. But Max, let's let's put this in perspective. I mean, you're talking about what six banks plus Peugeot Renault that have benefited from, from state aid. Is that really such a big deal? You've got so many other companies benefiting from from bonuses in France. Why the outcry about these six? Well, because they're systematically undermining the entire system, and they are basically created a mechanism to carve out equity and 
um, capital for themselves at the expense of society at large. So in the United States, unemployment is skyrocketing. The um, uninsured is skyrocketing. The uh, social fabric is, uh, is coming unglued. You have riots all over the world uh, in Iceland and other countries due to this what I call financial terrorism that was premeditated on purpose and should be addressed as such. There's a double standard. Why is the U.S. pursuing so-called terrorists in, in nations like Afghanistan uh, when they let these guys roam free on Wall Street? Okay. They're the worst I, criminals of all. They do more damage. Let's let's leave Afghanistan out of this. Um, uh, but why? It's a great source of poppy and heroin, which fuels a lot of these bankers' bonuses. Let's be frank about that. But uh, Pascal, um, what uh, isn't the the real problem? Though, is, is the state aid? I mean, you, you've been talking yeah, about no. incentives. Uh, you know that you've basically said you know that options are, uh, gives incentives to top CEOs, but it's the state aid that's the problem, as we've seen with the Natixis story today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the problem is that we have state aid, and that is a sort of vicious circle because the state or the monetary authorities are disturbing the financial system, and after that they come and they say we are the only one to, to be able to save it. So we we come and we, we give money, and normally, normally it would ought to be the, the capital market who, uh, to to bring money to the, to the, to the financial fear firms uh, which have uh, some difficulties. Uh, so. All the system is completely uh, disturbed by, by that. And now the state comes and says, uh, as we are putting money, quite often it is vague. Are they buying uh, securities or are they lending money? And so all this is mixed. It's, it's an important point. We shouldn't say that the French government is banning uh, exactly bonuses so. because it said Ed Claude Guillaume was actually quite nuanced, wasn't he? Exactly he said so. we're, we're creating the conditions where they could be uh, capped or, yeah, or, or uh, If ended. the state was to, to buy shares, it would have to, to act as a regular uh, shareholder and decide what, uh, what ought to be the bonuses, uh, uh, the stock option and so on, but it's not the case. And so, uh, let us just take again the, the, the case of Natixis. Natixis had a, a, a great deficit, and uh, the government came and put some money. And now uh, the government says uh, it is unfair that there are bonuses uh, distributed in, uh, at Natixis. I say, why is that? If it is in a difficult position, it has to have the best people uh, to trade on the market. And so if you don't give bonuses to the people who are working at Natixis, they will go to other financial firms, and Natixis may have more difficulties. So it is a completely uh, 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 silly <laughs> bonus. That's an it's absurd not, argument. That's like saying, I robbed a bank, it's so not, I should be given a reward to go rob another bank. And you're oh, rewarding crime. Why you are you speaking are of robbery? Because are, it is robbery. No, I'm, no, I'm sorry. You are, is robbery. You are not Counterfeiting is you robbery. Are not doing, you are not doing. What is it you are, you are not doing economic analysis. You're an you just for financial terrorists. I'm appalled. Work. No, I cannot I'm, discuss. I'm okay, okay, Max, Max, no, I cannot discuss with someone who is who's speaking of robbery, of corruption, and so on, without any Look, proof. The people are right it's to rise case. up and to take matters into their the own hands. If mm. the bureaucrats and the technocrats are not going to be on behalf of the people, they're going to allow the bankers to systematically steal their wealth, then it's up to the people to rise up and revolt. That's been the uh, throughout the pattern throughout history. Certainly I'm here sorry. in France, they know uh, about this. 
Certainly, Mr. Kaiser's comments are not over the top in the context of the trillions of dollars which are currently being pilfered by the bankers themselves. And as soon as the general public starts to realize the scope and extent of what's actually happening and the extent to which they've been lied to by the corporate-controlled media, there is little doubt that there will be little on the minds of most people who are currently unemployed and being foreclosed on other than revolution. This is, of course, the subject that we were covering in last week's episode in great detail, including, of course, the long buildup of the police state martial law apparatus that has been building up literally for decades in preparation for just this collapse. Of course, the obvious and logical outcome of what is happening today which really amounts to nothing less than a financial coup d'etat installing the bankers as really directors of the government itself. And a good indication of that, of course, comes from Alan Greenspan's admission on the McNeil-Lehrer NewsHour that, in fact, the Fed is completely independent of the U.S. government and answers to no one. Again, please check the documentation for a link to that video. But the obvious outcome of this financial coup d'etat is a revolt by the people. We're talking about tax revolts and ultimately rioting on the streets. This, of course, plays into the idea of the summer of discontent, which was the main thrust of last week's episode. And again, I would recommend all of the listeners go back and listen to episode 80 of this podcast if you missed it last week. If, indeed, we are being set up for a summer of discontent and rioting, well, it looks like we might be able to see the first signs of that this week, as London gears up for the G20. Across London, people are getting ready for a passionate debate. The G20 um, represents uh, an opportunity for us uh, to... uh, represent our views to world leaders. Strong words and direct action are being planned to coincide with the G20. The World Development Movement is just one organisation in an alliance of more than 100 that will march through London on Saturday. It's predicted to be Britain's biggest show of popular feeling since the Make Poverty History event of 2005 when more than 200,000 rallied in Edinburgh. This time, it's a broad coalition, including environmentalists, church groups, anarchists, trade unions, aid groups. Very different organisations with a common economic message. This is an opportunity for us to say, you know, the old model has failed. We need a fundamental and radical change. 25-year-old Helen Conacher says she'll be there with some friends. What do you guys hope to achieve? Um, I think... We just hope to have our voices heard. So They're not part of any group, they just want change. When things are hard, you can either sit there and moan about it or you can get off your butt and do something about it. Chris Knight is an old warrior for change, a man who believes the only good government is a dead government. The world's upside down, isn't it? It's all run by complete madmen and idiots and uh, basically men who don't know what they're doing, they're just stuffing their pockets. The march on Saturday is expected to be big and loud, but also peaceful. Police say they're not too worried about it. But throughout the G20 week, other, more aggressive protests are also being planned. April the 1st is expected to be a flashpoint. That's when a group called G20 Meltdown says it's going to invade London's financial district and occupy the Bank of England. 
Chris Knight will be among them. He says they're planning to hang effigies of bankers and, as bizarre as it sounds, turn the Bank of England into a brothel. The International Union of Sex Workers think that it's at the moment a rather sleazy place, den of iniquity, you know, it lowers the moral tone of the neighbourhood. Police are worried not all protesters will be so good-humoured. Much of the organisation is taking place online and there are reports some of the chatter points to recent rioting in Greece as a model for what they hope to see. Police say they're expecting a very busy week. Phil Black, CNN, London. Now there are a number of ways to dissect what we just heard. And of course, the most obvious one is to simply take the report at face value and realize that there is a great amount of rage that is about to be expressed at places like the G20 in London, but at other events coming up this summer, as tax revolts and even food rioting starts to take center place on in many of the countries that have hitherto been spared from this type of rioting. And the recent rioting and protests in Greece might be the blueprint for this type of movement. So we'll, of course, keep our eye on the G20 this week. But another way of dissecting what we've just heard is to think about how the corporate-controlled media is, in fact, as always, playing up the confrontation of these types of events. And rather than listening to the genuine concerns that many people have about the G20 summit, for example, they simply highlight some of the craziest and most outrageous protests, including turning the Bank of England into a brothel. A third way of thinking about what we've just heard is to think about one of the protesters featured in that report, Professor Chris Knight, the one who was talking about that protest of taking over the Bank of England. And he is actually a professor at the University of East London, and we can pick up the thread of that story from a Breitbart.com article from March 27th under the headline, Professor Suspended Over Hanging Bankers Remarks. Quote, A university professor who is organizing a protest at next week's G20 summit was suspended from his job after warning bankers could be hanging from lampposts, a spokesman said Friday. University of East London professor of anthropology Chris Knight told the BBC that demonstrators would be hanging a lot of people during protests in London against this summit next Thursday. Professor Chris Knight has been suspended from his duties at the University of East London pending investigation, a university spokesman told AFP. In order not to prejudice this process, we cannot make any further comment. End quote. Now what this report is really telling us is, in fact, what it is not telling us. It is not telling us that the British police have taken any steps to in any way question or detain this person who has been uttering death threats. It's telling us that he has merely been suspended from his university position. But if we step back and consider that, in conjunction with all of the other information we know about the draconian, repressive British government... And, of course, one example of that would be from today's Real News, where we talked about the independent.co.uk's story, police identify 200 children as potential terrorists. Again, this is a government that's willing to talk to children as young as 13 years old and identify them as possible terrorists and take steps in intervening in their lives and, of course, have to play the Orwellian Big Brother and monitor their activities on the Internet and what books they check out of the library in order to be able to, to identify potential terrorists. 
And of course, we remember Tony Blair's famous support for the idea that all children should be screened for the possibility of becoming criminals before they are even born. And yet, somehow, this professor is making comments about hanging bankers from lampposts, and he's not being investigated by the police. Again, all of this plays into that article that we talked about last week from David Icke, to the effect that we shouldn't riot because that's exactly what they want. This plays into their hands, and the larger the riots and the more out of control, the more they will be justified in the eyes of the general public in clamping down and starting the martial law police state buildup in earnest. So what are we to do in this situation, and how are we going to survive these very precarious times? Certainly the people running the system do need to be brought to justice in a court of law, but getting to that point is going to take waking up a lot of people to have a movement en masse, as David Icke writes, of non-cooperation. And unfortunately, before we get to that point, I think things are going to degenerate much further. And in the meantime, the most important thing that each and every one of us should be taking it upon ourselves to do is to prepare ourselves for this time of severe political, economic, and societal instability. When and if the summer of discontent breaks out in earnest and the rioting spills out onto the streets, how are we going to protect our own families? Because of course, as we know, self-sufficiency is the key, and we shouldn't be waiting for any government agency to come in and save us. In fact, of course, that's exactly what has gotten us into this entire political predicament we find ourselves in at the moment. So getting ourselves off of the grid and taking our family's own personal safety into our own hands is of paramount importance. So in light of all of that, perhaps this is a very hopeful sign. I've been through Y2K and I've been through 9-11. I have never seen people so afraid as what we are seeing right now. Business is booming at gun shops across the country. And at his store, Scott Moss says that's because of uncertainty over the nation's economic crisis. If the banks didn't have any money, there'd be rioting in the streets. So you're protecting yourself from Americans going crazy, rioting, looting, and hurting each other. FBI statistics show that in November 2008, firearm purchaser background checks increased 42% over the previous year. In December, they were up 24%. It's probably up 300% right now. Moss also believes that fears over whether President Obama might make it more difficult to get a gun have led people to his Norwalk, Connecticut store. One of those is 24-year-old Anthony Silvestro, a first-time buyer. I've never had a gun before. Silvestro, who runs an auto body shop, says he's concerned that President Obama might raise taxes on new gun purchases. He also worries that people will become more violent if the economy gets even worse. When you have a mixture of defensive people, lack of money, economy's getting bad, you have people that are depressed, people that might be upset. You know, carrying around a gun, you know, you feel comfortable. You feel like you you have a little bit of power. But some fear more guns will lead to increased gun thefts by criminals and more deaths in the home. It can be uh, 
the four-year-old that finds the gun and thinks it's a toy and shoots uh, his sister. It can be the husband and the wife that are having a quarrel and the gun's there and uh, all of a sudden one of them's dead. This is a Glock 19. The National Rifle Association disputes that, saying that firearms are used three to five times more often to stop crimes than to commit them. And Scott Moss says Connecticut has laws in place to prevent that. Buyers need a pistol permit, which requires background checks and a series of lessons at his shooting range. I'm not even saying I want to use my gun. I'm saying I want to know that it's there. God forbid I need it. God forbid someone breaks in my house. God forbid my alarm goes off. There are no official figures on the number of guns in the U.S., but most estimates say it's about 250 million. Yes, it seems that the inhabitants of one of the only countries that is still has even some shreds of individual liberty left insofar as they have not yet completely disarmed their slaves like so many other countries, like Australia and Canada and Britain have gone so far towards doing. Yes, it seems that the Americans are discovering their birthright and what has really been an essential part of their culture since its inception, the right to keep and bear arms. Now, of course, for those who perhaps have been distanced from that essential birthright or for people living in foreign countries who have really no conception of the vital importance of the right to keep and bear arms to the entire American enterprise, I will post a link in the documentation section to an excellent list of quotations from many of the Founding Fathers about the absolute essential nature of this incredibly important doctrine. And that's exactly why it was enshrined as the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Yes, people from both sides of the phony left-right political paradigm are really realizing that it is up to them to take their own personal responsibility for keeping their families safe and taking that into their own hands. So, while slaves are disarmed, free people are allowed to keep and bear arms in order to defend themselves and their families, especially if the rioting were to break out in earnest, and if we do start to see food riots and looting as a result of severe depression, which every economic indicator, unfortunately, shows that we're sliding into. Therefore, it seems obvious to me that Buying a firearm would be a prudent decision for people who are in the position to do so and are looking to protect and safeguard their families during this crisis. Of course, after that basic physical security is taken care of, one of course has to turn to finding a means for providing for the long-term security of their family, and in that case, of course, money is required. And of course, that's a fast disappearing asset for most people, even as trillions and trillions more continue to be pumped into the system by the privately owned central banks of the world. And of course, it's disappearing because it's being inflated away into nothing, even as it's being sucked out of the real economy and pumped into the phony financial services economy. Yes, of course, I'm talking about the death spiral of the U.S. dollar, its ending as a world reserve currency, and the fact that it's very soon likely to be worth about as much as toilet paper. To that end, divesting yourself of as much of those worthless paper dollars as you can and getting into a hard currency like gold or silver would seem highly prudent. And to that end... I recently had the chance and the honor to talk to Bob Chapman. Bob Chapman can be found at theinternationalforecaster.com, 
theinternationalforecaster.com. And he is an author, speaker, lecturer, and analyst of political, financial, economic, and societal issues, who provides a weekly and, in some cases, twice-a-week newsletter through theinternationalforecaster.com. For decades, he was the largest gold and silver stockbroker in the world and ran the largest financial newsletter in the world. And thus it was with great interest that I asked him about how people can best position themselves economically in this very uncertain economic climate. Let's listen to a short extract from my conversation with Bob Chapman, which of course is available for download in its entirety from the homepage, CorbettReport.com. It's my position that the best chance at surviving um, this collapse is to purchase the three G's, gold, guns, and grub. And by grub, I mean food, but that doesn't start with a G. So Uh, at any rate, do you think uh, such a recommendation is off the mark? No. No, I've been telling people uh, to do this ever since I got them out of the stock market in 2000 into gold and silver coins and shares and bullion. And I've been after people to buy freeze-dried, dehydrated foods and put them away and to have a water filter in case pure water isn't available and also have a method of defending your family, preferably an assault weapon, or what they call an assault weapon, which is really not, but it looks like one because it's semi-automatic. And um, for the most part, I'll put it that way. And... um, uh, that's the first thing you have to do. That's your insurance policy. And I get letters every day from people, gee, I, I never thought I'd get la- laid off. I've been with uh, General Electric for 28 years. But I listened to you. I sold my house two and a half years ago at the top of the market and I put my money in gold and silver uh, shares and coins. They're all up in value. And I put in dehydrated, freeze-dried foods. I've got weapons and I've got a water filter, and so uh, I can live for the next two years without working. And so that's what this is all about, and that's what people should be doing. And I know the time is getting shorter, but it's never too late. It certainly isn't, and uh, the the more forewarned we are, the more forearmed we are, certainly. So let's get into some specifics then. Um, Silver and gold are obviously two metals that you know very well, having been the largest silver and gold stockbroker in the world for decades. What advice would you have for people who are thinking of getting into the silver and gold market for the first time? Well, I think the deal that you deal with is extremely important. And we recommend uh, dealers in coins. We have a few of them that we've dealt with for many years. And uh, they are honest. Uh, they will help you on, uh, uh, on a personal and suitability basis. The delivery is excellent. And uh, the quality of what you buy, will, you'll get what you pay for. Uh, and the same thing with stockbrokers. I have a couple of people who I recommend and who've got over 35 years' experience. And uh, incidentally, I never get paid anything by anybody for recommending or doing anything. The only people who pay me are the people who uh, subscribe to the newsletter. And people who email me, I will answer everybody's questions. And if need be, I'll ask for a telephone number so I can call. Because sometimes people will say to me, well, I got an insurance policy and it's got $200,000 cash value in it and I'm 74 years old, what do I do? Well, it's not that easy to answer 
So I, I have to write back and say, Mr. Jones, please send me a phone number. I'm going to call you. And that's what I do. Well, that's an incredible service to be providing. But of course, everyone's economic situation is unique, and it does require that kind of one-on-one uh, analysis sometimes. So that's an, an incredible service, and I'm sure that some of my listeners would be happy to take you up on that. Um, as the Austrian School of Economics is, is fond of pointing out, uh, fiat paper money only has value if we believe the con men who are trying to sell it to us. But gold, of course, will always retain its value even in a depression. Um, but of course, in the hyperinflation uh, economy that we're, that we're moving into, uh, the paper will be worth nothing. But at the moment, we're still living in a paper economy. So for the average American family today, what, what percentage of a person's wealth do you think should be in precious metals? What percentage should be in stocks and investments? And what percentage should be kept liquid as cash? Well, along the way, it's it's been different numbers. But now, um, let me put it this way. All of my assets are in gold and silver, uh, related assets. And I don't know any place else to go to. You can't go into annuities and insurance because it could go under. Uh, you can't go in the stock market unless you want to short the market, which we've been unbelievably successful at. Uh, our newsletter recommendations have made more money for people than any newsletter in history. It's incredible. And uh, we're very happy about that, and we hope it continues. Uh, but other than that, I, I don't know where any place else to go. And if anybody else knows something better, please let me know about it, because the currencies are all fiat. Uh, even the euro is only 7% uh, backed by gold, and the rest of the currencies have no backing, like you just said, uh, Jim, that the currencies are only as good as the confidence that is backing the currency. And today, very few people have any confidence in any currency. People who understand what's going on. And as you've probably seen over the past year, there has been a contraction in the availability of gold and silver related assets such as coins and, and bars as there's been a time when you couldn't get any, and the premiums now are higher than they've ever been, and I think they're going to stay there. Because each day, people listen to broadcasts like this, and they say, gee, I knew something was wrong, and now I know what it is. So I'm going to go out and get some coins. And there are people all over the world who are listening to these broadcasts. I do 20 of them a week, plus my publication. We're reaching people all over the world and people all over the world who are listening and understand are doing that. And that is going to continue because the only real money is gold and silver, and it's going to come down to that. I mean, you see the G20 meeting coming up. They're all going to fight with each other over whether they're going to have another international trading unit, we'll call it. And what good is that going to do if they take the seven or ten, let's say ten major currencies of the world, where none of them except one is backed by anything. I mean, you're back to square one again. You've traded a fiat dollar for ten fiat currencies. There's no progress. Uh, maybe it'll extend the timeline as to, what, as to whether the entire world economy eventually goes into deflationary depression. We're in inflationary depression right now. And they might be able to extrapolate that out four, five, six years. 
I don't think so, but they may be able to. But once deflation takes over, the currencies are going to be worthless. Bob Chapman, again, can be found at theinternationalforecaster.com, and I highly recommend that people subscribe to his weekly newsletter. Or, of course, you can get a free trial copy of the newsletter at theinternationalforecaster.com. And the current issue at the time of recording, uh, the Saturday, March 28th, 2009 edition of the newsletter, has a lot of incredibly important information about the gold market and the way it's being manipulated and suppressed in order to hide its true value from the public. So, again, I would highly recommend that newsletter. But, of course, even if we were to secure our monetary future by investing in the only real currency, the hard currencies of gold or silver, what then to do about food? Food itself is becoming a scarce commodity, and as some of the wholesalers and people in the back end of the food industry will tell you, there is some severe supply shortening coming in the very near future, and food rioting might be the next part of the summer of discontent to kick in. So it's definitely something to keep your eye on. And I'll post a link to a very informative interview that the founder of eFoods Direct, Steve Shank, did on the Alex Jones Show recently, where he goes into great detail about precisely how and why this shortage is developing and how you can position yourself to defend against it. But, of course, one of the main ways that people can defend themselves against the shortening of the food supply is simply, uh, once again, to become self-sufficient, take yourself off of the corporate control grid, take matters into your own hand, and begin supplying your own food. While this once may have seemed a revolutionary or laughable idea, it's now an idea that is very much re-entering the mainstream, as, of course, it used to be taken for granted that people would at least plant some of their vegetables and fruits for themselves, and once again, that idea is taking hold. And that's something we can see reflected in stories like this one from the Monterey County Herald from March 28, 2009, under the headline, Garden Fever. From the White House to the West Coast, first-time urban gardeners are getting their hands dirty. Quote, Obama and 23 fifth graders from Washington, D.C.'s Bancroft Elementary broke ground on what will be the White House kitchen garden on the south lawn of the White House. The 1,100-square-foot plot will grow 55 varieties of vegetables, from tomatillos to Thai basil. The whole family, even President Obama, will be enlisted for weed-pulling duties. According to the National Gardening Association, some 9 million Americans are set for the very first time to press sole to shovel and carve out a swath of what might be called the New American Kitchen Garden, or the Liberty Plot, or just plain old common sense laid out in rows. We might, this growing season, be a nation in need of some collective back-40 quelling. What's rumbling just under the sod here is part reclaiming the earth, part a chance to swat back the recession, and part the old American can-do credo. It adds up to a vigor for vegetable plots. Everywhere, it seems, they're being sketched, laid out with strings and stakes and sky-high hopes, that hasn't been seen since one Eleanor Roosevelt dug up the White House lawn amid the food crunch of World War II and birthed the nation of Victory Gardens. 
All in all, it's estimated that 43 million American households will be poking in seeds and, if all goes according to plan, plucking backyard edibles. End quote. Yes, indeed, the Victory Gardens are definitely making a comeback, and of course, more and more people are getting involved in this movement, not only, of course, in America, but around the world. And an excellent source of information about this growing movement comes from Dictator Hater, the writer of a series of articles for the Corbett Report, many of them dealing specifically with gardening. Of course, Dictator Hater's articles can be found on CorbettReport.com and also on TheFrugalZone.com. TheFrugalZone.com being, of course, an excellent resource for people who are looking at saving money in these increasingly difficult economic times. So it was only natural for me to turn to Dictator Hater, a.k.a. Linda Williams, to find out more information about this Victory Garden movement and some tips for people who are interested in getting involved in this for the first time. Once again, becoming self-sufficient, getting off the corporate control grid, and taking their family's safety and well-being into their own hands. Let's listen to an excerpt from my interview with Linda Williams, where we talk about the phenomenon of the Victory Garden. As I say, your articles for The Corporate Report have covered a, a wide range of issues from economics to government corruption to political advocacy. But one of the topics that you consistently cover in great detail is the new old phenomenon of Victory Gardens, which, of course, were part of America's World War II effort. And they're once again springing up across the country, and they're being referred to as Bush Gardens in dishonor of the ex-president or recession gardens. Uh, personally, I think we should call them the economic meltdown is being engineered by the privately owned Federal Reserve Gardens, but um, <laughs> whatever we call them, they're definitely coming back in vogue. Um, why do you think this is, and what can you tell us about your own experiences with backyard gardening? Well, I think it's coming back in for many reasons. Um, it's a good form of entertainment for the family. Uh, you can be teaching your children something useful at, while you're spending quality time with them. Uh, one, uh, one of the biggest issues is probably the economic issue because groceries at the store are certainly not getting any cheaper. So people are going to try to, to grow something on their property so that they can save some money. And another thing is the Franken-food that we have uh, from all these different big agri-companies who knows what we're eating anymore and you can become healthier by growing your own food. Absolutely. And, of course, growing your own food is part of self-sufficiency, which is, of course, vital in this uh, current economic meltdown and is becoming more so. So I think as people start to rediscover the importance of becoming self-sufficient, more and more people are thinking about getting down and dirty in the backyard for the first time and really to rolling up the sleeves and, and planting some, um, some things to grow. Uh, what would be your advice for people who are thinking about doing this but don't know how to begin? Well, you know, you can get into gardening in a, a lot of different ways. Some people like to go out and spend a lot of money and, and buy all the, you know, a lot of fancy rigs to, to grow in, but you can do it fairly cheaply. Uh, how about if I just go over a fairly cheap way to do this first? Okay. Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Um, you can grow almost anything in a five-gallon container, and if you're in an area that has bakeries or places that sell pickles or whatever, you can ask those people for their containers. You can 
you grow tomatoes in them, all you have to do is drill holes in, in the bucket so that it will drain. And preferably something that's food grade. You don't want to put your food, your you know, your plants in something that's toxic. So you can use five-gallon containers. And potting soil is another thing you would need uh, if you don't have any dirt that you can use from your property. In my position here, I cannot go digging holes in my yard because it's too small. So I use a lot of containers to grow what I want to grow, and about all I need is the container, the uh, mix that goes in it, some fertilizer. You can use a, a triple pen fertilizer, and it will grow just about any kind of vegetable. And you also need to have you know, depending on what you're growing, every plant, not every plant, but most plants have, you know, a specific requirement to make them grow. Tomatoes like lime, you can get that really cheap. And you can get Epsom salts cheap that helps the, the tomatoes uptake the calcium that they need to be healthy. And uh, you also have to deal with pest control. Now, everybody seems to be on this organic thing, you know, they want to grow healthy and not use any pesticides. And that's a wonderful concept, but it's not something that I've been able to master completely. I, I find myself having to turn to some pesticides at some point during the season. And uh, all you would need to do is have a spray bottle if you have a very small um, garden to, uh, you know, like a spray bottle of pesticide. Or if you have a very large garden, you might want to invest in a sprayer that costs about $18 at the store. And that's just about all you're going to need to grow most most vegetables. That's excellent. And it's, um, again, it's not a complicated process, but it, it could be a bit intimidating for people who are doing it for the first time. Um, what do you suggest in terms of um, buying these resources? Do you, do you, is there any particular store or online source that you would recommend for people? I buy a lot of things online at instagarden.com. And it's spelled I-N-S-T-A garden.com. And the gentleman that owns that uh, particular website is very, very good at um, giving advice on uh, how to grow different things, and he's very successful. He, he grows some wonderful vegetables. Uh, I've been using a product called Coconut Core, which is an organic product that is a renewable resource, but, uh, you know, it, I use it to amend my potting mix in order... I'm in a very hot climate, so I try to put something in my soil that will cause the, the water to stay in the containers longer because when it's really hot here, you can be forced to water twice a day. And, of course, that's another resource we're all trying to save on, plus the water bills are going up. And uh, uh, one of the things that I buy from him, if you can't find buckets and you're trying to save money on your gardening, you can use grow bags. They are a plastic five-gallon bag that is pleated, and you can set it flat on the ground, and it's already got holes for drainage in it, and it, it holds five gallons of potting mix. You can grow tomatoes in it. Uh, you can even grow melons in, in five-gallon containers. But the main thing, if you have a very small area, is to think vertical. Try to, try to grow up a wall or try to build a little wooden teepee thing and, and grow your 
beans and peas on that so things aren't sprawling all over the ground. Plus, going vertical eliminates a lot of pest problems as well. Absolutely, that's a good idea. Um, Well, tell us about your own garden. What kinds of things do you grow? What kinds of things have you had the most success growing? And what kinds of things have you had um, perhaps some challenges in growing? Well, um, I... You know, the best piece of advice I can give anyone that's just starting out with a garden, and this is very important, and I didn't catch on to this for a while, the government, you know, uh, there's a lot of bad things about the government, but there is one area of government, which is your county extension office, that will send you a planting guide. One of the most important things you can know about gardening is to know when to plant what. Otherwise, you're you know, you may have a failure in your garden. And you can email your county extension office. You can call them, and they will, almost everyone, I think, has this, and it's free. And they will send this to you, and it gives you the the time to plant which vegetables. Now, um, I have right now growing, I have about 50 tomato plants, and they're all in containers. Um, I have had great success with tomatoes, eggplant, um, lettuce. Lettuce is a wonderful thing because you can, if you can grow tomatoes and lettuce, you can have a salad, you know. Um, There are many different types of lettuce. I don't like to grow the ones that make the heads. I like to grow the leafy ones because they're very fast to produce. Uh, Bok choy is another one. It's a Chinese cabbage. It can be used in stir fry or um, you can put it in soups. You can you can uh, you can do a lot of things with that. Um, I like fast-growing things. Uh, tomatoes aren't that fast, but uh, I love tomatoes, so I'll wait for those. Um, eggplant, love hot weather. Uh, you can you can get a lot of eggplants off of one plant. It's a high producer. Okra is another one, and there are so many different kinds of uh, vegetables that you can grow that are very unique looking. You don't have to just stick with the old green stuff. I mean, the okra that I'm going to be growing this year when it warms up more is a burgundy heirloom okra, which is a very unusual looking okra. Last year I grew uh, Clemson spineless, and it, it was great, but I wanted to try something a little different. Kale is another fast grower. You can you can uh, use it in salads. You can use it at different stages of its life. You can stir fry it when it gets a little bigger. You can steam it you can do a lot of things with that. Uh, radishes, you can have radishes within a month after you germinate uh, the seeds. They're, they're ready to eat. It's one of the fastest things you could possibly grow. Um, bunching onions is something else for someone that doesn't have a lot of space. The Japanese onions, you know, the little green onions you see at the store, they are fairly fast growing. I actually am growing them from seed. Everything I'm growing this year is from seed. Um, if you're a beginning gardener, I would recommend that you buy some plants at the store, uh, at a nursery or something, and, and go from there, and then do some experimenting maybe in your second year with growing from seed, because it is a little more difficult, and what we want to happen is for you to have a successful garden your first year, so you'll want to keep doing it. Once again, Linda Williams, a.k.a. Dictator Hater, can be found at thefrugalzone.com. 
And of course, at thefrugalzone.com, you can also find access to the books that she's co-written with Kate Prince, who we've also interviewed previously on this podcast. Linda Williams has also supplied us with some pictures from her garden, so if you're interested in seeing some of the things that she's been growing, I will put up those pictures in the documentation list for today's episode. Of course, people are always looking for solutions to the problems that we are facing today, and really the solutions start with you. The solutions start with yourself looking in the mirror and deciding to take the steps to get off of the control grid and to start becoming self-sufficient. It's not easy, and it's not a silver bullet, and it will not change the world overnight. But the more we can get ourselves off of depending on the system and into supporting ourselves, the more chance we have of becoming truly free. A free and independent society is based on its ability to provide for itself. And of course... This, like many other aspects of our free and independent society, are under attack at the moment. And there are a couple of articles that I'd like to draw my listeners' attention to, pointing out some of these police state tactics that are being taken even against our ability to grow and sell our own food. One excellent article comes from the Intelligence Daily from late 2008, under the headline, SWAT Team Raids an Ohio Organic Co-op which has a lot of background information about some of the raids that have been going on all across America against people who are attempting to grow and sell their own food. And another indispensable article from Cryptagon.com called Change We Can Believe In, How About the End of Farmers Markets? Say Hello to H.R. 875, Food Safety Modernization Act of 2009, and I would suggest that all of my listeners read through that extremely important article and find out about H.R. 875 and how it may in fact be used to regulate things like farmers markets right out of existence. And of course, that legislation's sponsor, Rosa DeLauro, just happens to be married to Stanley B. Greenberg, who just happens to work for Monsanto. And of course, we can get into the National Animal Identification System, and the premises ID, and all of the other ways that our natural freedom to grow our own food on our own land are being taken away from us even as we speak. But perhaps that's best left for a future edition of the Corbett Report episode where it can be fleshed out in full length. At any rate, I've provided some ideas here today about ways that people can get themselves off the system and start to take their own safety into their own hands as we move into this summer of discontent and as we move further and further towards the economic precipice of the Greatest Depression. Of course, I'm always interested in hearing your feedback and your ideas of possible solutions, so you can always, of course, contact me through the Corbett Report website at corbettreport.com or leave us a voicemail message via our phone number at 512-553-0297. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for today's episode, and asking you to join me next week for episode 82 of The Corbett Report. Goodbye, Australia. Fury's breathing down your neck. Team 
Uh, my basis of economics analysis is not uh, on the same uh, level as perhaps a, a functionary of the product of the European uh, bureaucracy, but I would say that we do agree on the fact that gold bullion could in fact be the, uh, the basis of a sound economy oh, going oh, forward. On that I agree completely. Good. <laughs> Wonderful. At least one point to agree on to, to finish the debate.